you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out this year in 2022. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, and I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. And I always forget to mention that my movies are named Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. Speed of Life on, on Showtime. Right Woohoo! Now. Yeah, yeah. This week, we talk with producer Milan Chakraborty about his company, Marginal Media Works, how he works with filmmakers, and what his process is for finding financing for films. After that, we have a very special bonus guest with writer, producer, and star of the new short film Lena, Erica Longo, who talks to us about how she approached making her first short film, how she built the team, and her transition from acting to also working on the other side of the camera as well. But before we get into that, Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's my son's birthday. He's three. He's three years old. He's very cute. I love him very much. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Colin. You're the best. If you hear this after I've died and you're trying to get to know me better, then I love you. Um, that's, I think that's the only time you would listen to this one specific episode. I do think about that all the time. I'm always like, oh God, will I be proud of this in 10 years if Colin like tries to get to know me through this podcast? Wow. And probably not. Anyway, what else? I had a really good conversation with my composer where I said things that I've been afraid to say for weeks. Like, I just don't like this instrument. And I just said it out loud and it was wonderful. And then I had a really good meeting. I don't know if I mentioned this, but I'm writing a, like a musical. I mentioned it before. It's like an updated Eddie and the Cruisers type movie. And I had a really good meeting with our composers yesterday. So I'm just music and call-in minded right now. That is my life. Are you writing the songs for the musical as well as the, you know, the, the movie? So I'm actually not even writing it. So I should probably let me clarify. I've hired this amazing writer, Amy Starbin, to write the script. And she and I are in outline phase right now. And then Beth Thornley and Rob Cairns, I did a music video for Beth maybe 10 years ago. They're writing the needle drops of like, they're writing the musical numbers, but they're kind of pop song musical numbers. Mm. So it's like a, I don't even know what you'd call it. Like there's no musical numbers outside of this roadhouse where a band performs. But it's mm. still a musical because all the songs relate to the plot line mm. and music is integrated throughout the film. So I'm doing nothing other than watching magic happen. Oh, but I, wow. I'm telling people I'm making a musical and, and being vague about my responsibilities. Why did you decide to hire a writer for this one? Because she wrote this script for this film I'm attached to called I Can Change. And it was such a well-written script. And Amy and I got along so well. And I'd read other things she'd done. And I just thought, she's amazing. I just want to see what else she can write. And oh, wow. maybe it can be something that I really want to make and we can work together. So it was honestly just to see, to be able to witness her magic up front is why, why I wanted to do it. I'm going to ask you a really technical question right now. But who is the owner of the script? Will it be her or will it be you? It will be me. I'm commissioning her. I'm commissioning her to write the script. But what we have is like an informal agreement of like both of us having creative influence over it. And what I want to set up is something what I kind of have with my co-writer for this other feature in that I don't want to cut her out of the development or financing process. 
And what Amy alluded to me is like one of the reasons she wants to work together is she's a, she wants to be a director too. Oh, wow. And she's made a short film. So I think she wants to be brought in through the process of getting the film off the ground to learn for her own projects. So hopefully there'll be like a labor swap to a degree in, in that aspect. Nice. What's going on with you? Tell me. What is going on with me? I uh, submitted the revised version of my movie to be QC'd that it needs to pass in order for the distributor to, to take it, basically. Because it's just it's this one special circumstance with our international distributor where they really needed it to have you know a filled M&E track in order for them to mm-hmm. accept the movie. So like it was sort of a deal breaker. And I'm waiting right now to find out if it passed. I think it did. Because last time I submitted it to them, within like three hours, they were like, this is not right. Like, this is not going to pass. Now they're, they're been working on it for a day. So I'm, I just emailed them. Hope, hope they'll, they'll, they'll tell me that we're good to go. And then I'll be shipping out drives this week to <gasps> my, you know, international and domestic distributor with the final finished versions of the movie. I've got all the special features sort of collected. I have a little bit more work to do on that. But I'm like really close to having that all ready to go. I did two commentary tracks for the movie, one with the actors, one with the cinematographer and the production designer. And I did it because I love commentary tracks. And I feel like you see so few of them these days. It's like, I just wanted to keep it alive, keep the commentary tracks going. So, you know, if you get the DVD or the Blu-ray or whatever ends up happening, there will be a commentary track on there. And even if we don't make DVDs or Blu-rays, I'm going to make my own and I'll, you know... I'll give out a couple copies to people or whatever. I don't know if I'll sell any, but I'll just, I'll just have them, you know, just like a little special edition thing. Yeah. What else is going on? That's the main thing. I mean, I'm working a little bit on brother, but I feel like I'm coming to terms with the idea that like, really, we do need some script rewrites and I'm working with a writer on that as well. So it's sort of like this thing, it's like a, a conversation, you know, you know, we're, we're 50, 50, on everything, like, you know, 50-50 owners, 50% on the creative input and everything. So it's like, we basically need to convince each other of changes happening, you know? And I feel like there's some definitely some things that need to happen in order for that movie to like, kind of be, take it from like a solid, good script to like a great script or something that has like an emotional impact that really hits, you know? And then I really need to start writing again. I'm like in this place where... I feel like that needs to be the thing that I do every day. So I've been reading scripts lately. That was like the first step was like, okay, I have all these scripts that I've said I would read. So I've started reading again, which has been really fun. I read like a pilot and I'm half, I'm uh, almost halfway through. Are these produced or are they favors for friends right now? It's more like things that I've heard about from random people and, mm. or friends and that like seemed interesting. And I was like, oh, I, let me read this and see if it's something that I would either, you know, want to attach to myself to or that I would like maybe want to get made. But I'm just, I'm just trying to read more unproduced work and just get better at reading scripts because I'm so bad at reading scripts right now. It just takes me forever. There's a couple that people reached out to me, like cold, cold emailed me or like found me on LinkedIn or like, hey, I want to submit my script to you. And so I've got a couple of those that I'm supposed to read. So I'm, I'm reading the ones that I think are better, <laughs> that I think are going to be better first. And I'm working my ways down to the ones that are, are more a complete unknown. No offense to anyone <laughs> who said random Someone's things. Someone's listening right now. They're like, I haven't I heard know. back from Ulrich. What's going on? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if you don't know them and 
you're not friends, right? Like you have no connection besides them just reaching out to you. It's like, I feel like that is, you know, the lower on the totem pole. It's like people that you know directly or that you're friends with or that you like really were like you were the one who requested the script for whatever reason. It's like, those are the ones that are higher priority. It's the ones that were just sent to me. It's like, okay, well, you know, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll get to them, but I'm, I will read them. I will, <laughs> or at least read enough to know that it's something I would never be interested in. And then maybe give them some feedback to the point of like, well, this is why I stopped reading because of this reason or something. But I would be very, I, w- I want to be very honest with people. Like I don't want to just, like agree to do something, not do it. And then, and not tell them why, you know, like if it really is shitty, like, I'll just be like, look, these are the reasons why it didn't work for me and why I had to stop reading it, you know? And then just hopefully that's helpful. And maybe they come back with a revised version later. I don't know. But anyways, I think we've done enough talking, but one of the things that you can do if you want to interact with us directly is to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. And we want to wish a very, very happy birthday. Oh, Liz is going to wish the happy birthday. Yeah. Okay. So excited. So just I'm going to contextualize this because my brother became a Patreon for our show. His name is Tom King. And he may not understand that us saying happy birthday to him is just like a thank you for being a Patreon patron. So thank you, Tom, for supporting the show and being our newest Patreon patron. But take it away, Alric. Thank you, Tom, for the love. Happy, happy birthday to you, Tom King. Also, we have to let everyone know that as of now, season six of the show featuring episodes with Amber Seeley and Joe Bob Briggs and many, many more, including Terlyn Shropshire, editor of The Old Guard, starring Charlize Theron. All those wonderful episodes are now not available anywhere except on Patreon. So if you want to listen to these awesome episodes, if you miss them, you never listen to them or you listen to them, you love them and you want to listen to them again. You got to go over to Patreon right now and sign up today for $1.99 and that will get you access to the whole back catalog. I'm currently taking down season five right now. I'm like a quarter of the way through with some other amazing episodes in that season. But hopefully within the next month or so, nothing will be available except the current season and the previous season. So right now you can listen to episode 300 and on for the show, but anything before that is it's going to be gone soon. So either listen to it fast or yeah, sign up for our Patreon to, to t- check it out. Oh, and I did a video. I did a video for Patreon. Oh, Liz did a video for Patreon. <laughs> I didn't even watch it. Oh, my gosh. And Kyle freaking Kenyon liked it on Vimeo. So it makes oh me really gosh. happy. Amazing. Yes. So if you want to watch a video, <laughs> please become a Patreon patron. I've been doing videos too, and I'm going to continue to do videos. I've been mainly, mainly talking about my process of getting the movie ready for distribution for the alternate ready for distribution. So there's so many steps. So I've been just talking about like the struggles and things I've been account- encountering with that. And I even posted up like an early version of the new trailer for the movie. You can, can't see anywhere else. That's the only place you can see it is on Patreon. So if you want to see what the distributor wanted my trailer to look like versus what the trailer is now, yeah, you can see that on Patreon. Also make sure to check out our newest sponsor, Jambox IO. They're a royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues. They offer customized plans to fit your needs. They focus on working with composers on an ex- exclusive basis. So you won't hear these tracks anywhere else. You can sign up today using our promo code MMIH to get a 20% discount. And this is what I use to put the music and sound effects in for the trailer. So they they definitely work and it's definitely awesome. But without any more Jibber jabber, globbity gloop. Here's our chat with Milan.
So Milan, can you give us the elevator pitch for distancing socially? The elevator pitch for distancing socially, distancing socially, it's just how we learn to be connected in a time when we were in lockdown, but hopefully the funny version. It, it evolved because I, I remember early version of the script. It was like, I was like, nobody's going to want to go back to a drama of this time, you know? And it, it became the funny version. And we ended up with, you know, everyone from like Sarah Levy of Schitt's Creek and Jim O'Hare from Parks and Rec, just Alan Tudyk, just some extremely funny people that, you know, that so. And how many days did you shoot the film? How many days did we shoot? If it, I would almost say, okay, I think there's like 12 actors. So I'd probably say like 13 or 14 days because mm. the way it worked is we'd send a camera to the actor and they're, they're basically their own hair, makeup, wardrobe, production design. Jim O'Hare had to move. It's like, we can't have that piece of art in the background. You know, they, they were great troopers. And then they needed to send us the cameras back. <laughs> So it's very unique because it's a, it's a film. Technically, it was filmed in Vancouver because Alan was shooting a show there. Nashville, New York and L.A. But, you know, I think the director only left Nashville once to do some do some pickups in L.A. What can you speak of with regard to budget? Sub 100,000. And then how was the idea created? Like where and how did you get involved in the project? The writer director is. Chris Blake Johnson, a filmmaker out of Na- Nashville. And if I interchangeably use Chris or Blake, bear with me. It's the double first name. Yeah, is, it can be confusing. But him and I have been friends for several years. And I think just like everyone during lockdown, we were all checking in our friends. What are you doing? Going through different ideas. How are we going to get stuff done? And he kind of pitched me the, the, the framework, the architecture of this. And in a, lo- in a lot of ways, it reminded me of like searching, which our friends Sev Sevohani and you know Nat and Anish made, and and I was like, oh oh my goodness! And like the technology's come so far from the first time they made searching. It's like, wait, we can do this, and I was like, this would be a fun thing to play with. So we've been friends, and just like I think, just filmmaking in general, and and that you, friends keeping in touch, and then talking about different ideas and see what sticks. And it's like, I really like that idea. Let's run with it. See if we can create. And, and that was specifically kind of creating in a time where it was just too scary to link up with people in real life. You know, the first lockdown pre, pre-vaccination. I refuse to say, you know, pandemic as in past tense, because as we know, we're very, very much still, still in it. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> Compared to all the other projects that you've been a part of, you VIP producer, you, how difficult was this one? Uh, I, for me, it was easy, you know, but the filmmakers, like not only the writer director, but the cinematographer who also is, is being real time tech support. Cause basically the actors have an iPhone in front of them and we're watching from zoom and they're having to balance and do all this. So just like filmmaking, it's not until you actually talk about it where you're like, Oh wow, there's a lot more to it. So for me, it was, it was, it was easy, a lot less moving parts. You didn't have whole crews or this, but I was just, as with all projects, you know, surround yourself with great, great people. They did a great job and worked, really hard and obviously the logistics people were in different places and 
you know, how is it going to cut together? Cause you're having conversations sometimes, you know, they're not, that conversation isn't happening. None of them are actually, except one, I think is actually happening live back in, uh, you know, back and forth where they're able to work. It's like, you could record it and then you could play it back to the actor who's going to play it off it and they could, you know, respond. It was just like, so in a way it's like, Oh wow, this is a nice innovation. Maybe, maybe there's more to do like this, uh, this way. So yeah, you mentioned before, like moving from an indie filmmaker to this new position of being head of filmmaker, head of production for this, this company. So can you just talk about that transition and then like what your day-to-day looks like now? Yeah. You know, Going back to just talking about friendships and friendships evolving, you know, I was working with Sanjay Sharma, who was the founder and creator of Marginal Media Works for a year, where he optioned a script from me. And we got to just become better and better friends. He's a South Asian from Louisiana. I'm Indian from Indiana. You know, like we both were at Warner Brothers around the same time. And, you know, he kind of offered me the job. And at first, it's like, Oh, what's what does that mean? I'm not a traditional head of film, but I think I'm pretty good at helping people execute their vision. So it's been cool for me for the first time, you know, for a long time. I've obviously I've tried to be an advocate for underrepresented stories, but for the first time, it's my actual mandate. It's my job. So for most of my career, if you have a good idea and I think I can help you execute. Let's go. But now we're looking a little bit more specifically. So it's like it, it, it's hard sometimes because my my default is trying to help as many people as possible. But I'm trying to have them respect what the new position is as we try to tell underrepresented stories from underrepresented filmmakers. And specifically, we don't just want to dive into the traditional trauma based stories or ex- stories of pure exceptionalism. We just think we can have stories, whether it's horror or comedy, romantic comedy, like just stories, just like everyone else. And stealing this from Sanjay, as he says, I- identity is a prism, not the plot. So it just doesn't have to define everything we're doing. And that's been really exciting. It's almost been a year since I started. So day to day is kind of achieving that mandate. Mm, I love that. Going back to before you joined Marginal as head of film, just being an indie producer, you have a, you have a lot of information that our listeners are like dying to have. So I'm going to ask like the big question, which is like, how should indie filmmakers prepare themselves to find financing? I mean, as a producer I, and as a consultant, I know you've been overseeing that aspect of a lot of films and connecting films to financiers. How could a filmmaker prepare themselves if they don't have you? It's a great question. I think that's our one of the hardest questions in our own in, own industry. The one that I even str- struggle with, and I think it, it's asking questions like this from day one. Anytime you're about to ask someone for money, the, that's a very like important thing, and a, a res- you know you you need to respect where the money's coming from and do do your d- due diligence and. Once you're asking someone for money, you're not just dealing with film world. You're actually under securities exchange. You're in the SEC world. And so it's like learning that it is a business and you need to do what you need to to protect yourself and protect them. And it's okay if you don't have all those answers. Just make sure someone on your team does. And I say this every time I get an opportunity to speak, just because you can raise money doesn't mean you should. I look at that, that we should all 
be very protective of our whole ecosystem. Like I'm never rooting for another indie film to fail because of somehow it's a zero sum game for me to win. They have to fail. I look at it as every time something goes out the gate, if it does fail, well, there's a series of people around it, sometimes high net worth individuals that are now going to tell 10 of their friends that film is a bad idea. And, and it, it just like if one stock doesn't go, does, goes down, it doesn't mean the whole stock market is bad. It's like, was the due diligence done up front? And I don't think enough people spend, everybody's got those big dreams and aspirations and I never want to step on that. But if we go in with the mindset that we're all protecting the same ecosystem, and I'm not saying that means every movie should be five million and a half Bruce Willis, right? That's its own kind of like model. I'm saying, okay, who's are you asking who your audience is? If you know the worst mistake you made, you can make. I make. I made all my first films, even though I love them. Is some all my first is you're a tweener. Nobody knows what you are, and it's just like we don't get that right right away as a as a as an indie filmmaker and asking all these questions up front and then proceeding. Sometimes it's like, okay, make it, but make it at the $200,000 budget or a hundred thousand. Just flex that muscle, nothing harm done. As we all know, the hardest film in the world to make is your second film. And if, if everyone goes in with that mindset, don't just do that first one because the amount of times it's like, oh man, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known. And it's just like, that's why shorts and whatever else can be a great idea to just get that time, get that, you know, it's just, it's just like a muscle. It's a, you're exercising that muscle of what filmmaking looks like from beginning to end. I want to dig into this a little bit deeper because you mentioned a couple of these like pitfalls, like don't be an in-betweener or, you know, which I think means like be a clear genre. Like don't be like half this, half that, like actually commit so you could get that audience. But what are some other like pitfalls that you see like filmmakers do that you think they should be avoid? Like, certain budget levels or there other things that you know you should go under that due diligence when you're deciding whether to make a movie or not yeah that's another one of those like it could be a three-hour answer question <laughs> so let me yes the tweener comes from i feel like a lot of people especially film film school people they're taught the model of the studios and the four quadrant you've got to impress everyone men women old young but what you realize really quickly when you make a film is instead of that four quadrant, you got to hit your niche and nail your niche. So you can't be on both sides of it. And, you know, you see movies like Parasite or Moonlight in the last couple, in the last few years and how they got to be known by everyone because they nailed exactly what they were trying to be. And then quality kind of crosses over. So that's where that tweener comes from. It's addressing the whole four quadrant philosophy. The other is, is knowing, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. And I, I want people, every, every podcast and indie film, you know, you, you have to mention Jim Cummings, right? That's like a rule. And, you know, I, lo- <laughs> I love his like, everybody just make, make, make. And I, I want to agree with it 95% of the time. But him and his team at Vanishing Angle, they put in the work. And I don't think everyone realizes how much work developing their teams and their craft on their short 
they put in before that made them ready for that jump. And when they when they made that jump, it looked so easy. But they they put in that work. I think understanding that it's a process. When I first started, a friend said, "Give yourself seven to ten years to feel like you're heading in the right direction." And I didn't start till I was 29. I was an auditor and accountant, and I was like. Seven to ten years to feel like when you're 29. I was like, I'm going to be 40. You know, I'm 43 now, and it's like, oh, I forgot how you know young I was back then. And four years in, I made my fourth film. It was the the lifeguard directed by Liz Garcia. That was at Sundance 2013. And in my head, I was like, I knew it wouldn't take me that long. But then you get introduced to how critics are at Sundance and how sales work at Sundance and. I had to re-kind of calibrate the kinds of, you know, the films I was trying to make for. That made me, as much as I love Sundance and, you know, I'm not counting the vir- virtual years, even though we had a film in virtual last year, I've only missed one in the last 14 years. One of those key mistakes is it seems like a lot of people's game plan is still Sundance or bust. And there's a whole, I love regional film festivals great for networks, great for a, a, a million other things and, and great for the ecosystem. You know, if you're a horror, there's those specialized, you know, Fantasia, Fantastic, Brooklyn Horror, Chattanooga, where, where I am, I think is a great, you know, genre film festival. And you get to know people and, you know, feel good films. Now you're looking at the Dallas's and the Heartland, and, you know, film festivals and really understanding that Every film has its own journey. And I think a lot of people, because we're sold, you know, we're still told the stories of Six, Sex Lies and videotape and taking the reels to Park City. And, and, and I love those stories, but it's like it's evolved since then. There's more places for films to go than ever before. And let's, let's have those conversations up front. Everything doesn't have to have theatrical. It's okay, especially in our world. Well, let's let's dream big, of course, but let's be realistic. And if things don't go in our favor, we still have a whole plan, and we we're not abandoning anything because we do have responsibilities to our investors, and we have as producers, we have our responsibility to our director and our actors, like to put in the best work to get the film seen in the best best way possible, or just seen. Period. Let's go. Let's talk about how you evaluate content. When you read a script, when someone approaches you as an indie producer, not necessarily a marginal, because I know you have that mission at marginal that may not apply to all the scripts that are brought to you. Is it a gut thing? Is it you reading the script and saying, I want to make it? Or are you evaluating it in terms of its market value? Is it everything? How are you looking at content, knowing where it's going to end up? All those are exactly right. And that has evolved. At the beginning, it was all about how much did I like it. And then I was like, well, that's kind of silly because I'm not the audience for everything. So the first question would, didn't become about my reaction is, did it accomplish its goal? If it was horror, was it scary? If it was Christian, does it, you know, take out the dams and the, and, 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 you know, all, all that? Does it accomplish its goal. That's the first kind of you know threshold. Then the, the then the second, I think, because you know we've been doing this for a while, and you realize how long these films stay with you. I call it the stickiness factor. It's like if someone asks you like three months, six months later, what are you excited about? 
you know how your brain can't even control which answer? Like a couple of things just pop up. Well, those pass the kind of stickiness test. Because we're in this for so long and I'm answering this purely as a as a as a producer. And I'm I'm I, I'm not an aspiring director, actor, writer. And I, I know that's not everyone's like the default they're producing. I love producing and this is what I what I focus on. But as a as a producer, knowing how long these state if if now now the rule is if you don't love it, you know, yes. There's some exceptions to that. And I'll call those like opportunity, either opportunity investments or opportunity, a pedigree on a project, or this will be a good return for an investor, which allows me to make the next film. Right. And a lot of times people have gotten on me like, why are you giving away your investors? And for me, it's the ecosystem. If, if you've taken it a lot far, your project a lot farther than I've taken my project and I like yours too. And I like, you well, I want to help you. That's that's why I have so many more credits. I didn't make it about me, and I think that's w- probably one of the biggest things about a producer. It's not about us. Like mm. we promote the project, the director, the actor, the writers, a, f- a bunch of other things. Then then it's us, which which probably also ties into me telling you earlier. This is only my second podcast, and the first one was like two months ago because I'm not used to. If I've been doing this you know, like 20, 21 films in 13 years, you won't find that many pictures of me on a red carpet even because it's like somebody defaults to is everybody getting on in front of the camera, this, that. And it's just like, it's not about me. So I still don't feel like that. I love sharing this information because I just wish, I mean, when I started, you know, like there were more people that were willing to talk to me. I've never had a mentor. I've never had a this. And so I try to I I try to put myself out there that you got to put in those seven to ten years, you know. <laughs> and, and, but if you're w- willing to do it, it is there is a road when you don't come from connections, when you don't go to film school, like to get somewhere in this industry. I'm I, I'm I'm hesitant to ever use the word success because I hope it doesn't just <laughs> look like this. <laughs> So you mentioned briefly, like you have like your investors and that you've like, you know, brought them into other projects that weren't your own projects. So I guess the the main question is like, how did you find like this group of investors or whoever, I don't know, like, or is there a group of investors that you've cultivated over the years? And and what does that look like? And how do you maintain that? I guess. A great question. You know, I do think a little, you know, sometimes a little bit of this, you know, Gray hair is a is a good thing with life and life experience and <laughs> and people understanding like you know that's where you know my early years I was really kind of embarrassed that I was the former CPA I I, I couldn't talk film theory and film history with anyone you know on most panels people are like when did you know you want to be film and somebody will say twelve eight and I'll be like I was like twenty six twenty seven because. That's not that's not something Indians from Indiana even aspire to be. There's a reason I was a CPA. That's safe and that'll get me a good stable stable job and in these conversations over the years with investors, a lot of it is first, it's a listening game. I don't take the and and you see it every film festival you go to, you see those people in the room they're trying to talk to everyone in the room to figure out who can help them today. And, and they'll flip into their pitch before they've even taken in your, your first name. And I, I have immediately 
I'm looking at them, but I am not listening to a word because I play the long game, developing relationships, listening to people. What are their interests? I, I kind of, this was kind of co-created with Jonathan Duffy. I don't know if he's been on a great producer and a friend, friend of mine, you know, did Sorry to Bother You and with Kelly Williams and that uh, and a bunch of other people. But I put investors into two buckets. There's the ROI investor. They're looking to make money. So the only proposals you want tax credits or projects that have pedigree or some sort of metrics around it. And then the other type of producers we call return ROE, return on experience. So if people are telling you that they're really interested in the Amazon rainforest or they're really interested in this, and then if you've listened long enough and you haven't pitched them anything, Two years from now, when you read that script, that's about what they were interested in. And you've had that discipline, especially high net worth individuals. They are, they are pitched all day, all night from every person they know to try to get their money. And, and that's why I think protecting the ecosystem is so important is don't ask just because it's there. Like I, I like to say we're all presented like a series of levers as we go. The key is when to knowing when to pull on each lever. It's there, but if you try it every time you see it, it's just there's exceptions to that rule. It's just not my style. I'm not a throw everything up against a wall and hope something works. I, I call I take a much more measured approach. We've sat there, we've listened. So I think cultivating, developing the friendship and relationship and knowing that that is paramount to getting one dollar from them. If it's gonna cost me my friendship, I don't want it, you know? And I usually give people all the reasons they shouldn't invest. I'm trying to talk them out of it. And by doing that, if they're still in, we're good. <laughs> and I think I'm okay at it, but we're, you know, it's a, it's a very hard think about the monumental shifts the industry has taken in the last 10 years. You know, when I left, well, you know, Warner Brothers in 2008, they got me my first Netflix subscription, three DVDs, you know, and, and, and it was just like, and who would ever thought that that company was going to be the 800 pound, you know, gorilla driver of film and, you know, the word content. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about pedigree? I mean, you mentioned going to Sundance with the lifeguard. You talked a little bit about, you know, the different types of festivals out there. But I think there's this myth amongst the emerging filmmaker that you can make an indie drama with no cast and there's still some sort of pathway for you to recoupment. And I just want to see what your position is on terms of the importance of genre and cast in, in the okay. marketplace. Let's split that up a little bit, just because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm answering this not as much as on the recoupment side, even though that's a, that is kind of related. But the, the part I think I'm addressing is the film festivals and maybe the top film festivals. You know, these are the places where I might accidentally get myself in trouble. Like, <laughs> so, you know, getting that first film into Sundance, it was like unlocking a door. Once you start meeting the other producers in the room, the other directors in the room, and it's like, oh, this is where those good projects are, you know? And nowadays, by the time like Sundance or South by or Tribeca announces it, it's like, I've heard of 15 to 20 of those films in the last year to two years. And and it's just like, so that's where pedigree comes into play. 
never in a million years, just because you've had a film there from director to producer, there's no guarantees, just like anything. The only thing it's guaranteeing is if you have a good relationship that they're going to watch it a little bit more timely. It's not going to get screened out at an early thing. And and there's I'm trying to think of the festival programmer's argument to, oh, no, we have two people watch it and different festivals have this because they want to see you. You you're the expert on this. They want to see their fellow alum succeed. And there's a familial. So it's like, I do think it's important to have someone on your team that's been through it before, because the reason I share these stories is I learned it the hard way. So hope so you don't have to, you know, it's just like, don't learn it the hard way because that's, that's bad for your investors. And, th- and, and this, ask those questions up front. Okay. What's our plan? Who's been there before? Can they help? Because if you don't get in, what's your backup plan? And then, oh, does somebody have direct relationships to distributors? Someone have direct relationships with sales agents? You know, the, one of the coolest things, I, I, I can't remember if you said you've interviewed Ross for this. Yeah, you did, know, but. but- He's, he's as good as it gets that understands both sides. And it's such a pleasure to have... He's, he's become the agent he always wishes we had on the other side. And I did, did one, one project with him, but only after seeing how he, what he did with First Girl I Loved and tracking it through your Sundance you know, creative distribution. I was like, this is a person that has good pedigree. And that had nothing to do with you know, anything. But it's like, he works hard. He understands the system. You know, this is where you just fall into those traps of talking about people like Jim. And, and it's just like they were presented an offer and they didn't take it. But sometimes that's the best offer you're going to get. But they, they did the work and they understood it before they went in. You know, you're, you're so excited when you get an offer anytime. It's hard not to take it because part of you, your, your nature wants to, by the time you get to that stage, you've been with this project for so long, you just want to do the next thing. So that patience at the end, how do you want this to go? And if you're willing to kind of take it and I'm going to go, it's well, that's going to be a full-time job too. So I'm just like curious to hear a little bit about like, is there one best way to do it? Like, like is Sundance or a big festival the best way to introduce a movie to the world? Or is there a realm where going direct to distribution is just as good, if not better, for a movie, depending on the movie? Or do you feel like it's always the best to like get the hit, hit the big film festival and then launch it that way? If you can get into Sundance, it's a great thing. But just because you know the buyers are focused. But, you know, the cool thing, you know, going back to having, a, you know, sales agents, now you can make the marketplace in LA. You, a good sales agent like, you know, Verve and Ross and, and, you know, the CAAs, WMEs of the world, they can get all the buyers to watch it and create that fervor that, uh, like, it's a, it's a smaller version that happens on you know, you don't get the altitude effect, which sometimes make those dollar amounts to go up. So yes, while Sundance is... But here's the flip side of Sundance. If you don't get that sale at Sundance or some bad reviews come in, it's literally watching an asset kind of deflate like a balloon because there's the freeding frenzy. So if you come out of Sundance and you don't have a sale, every buyer thinks, well, why didn't it get bought? 
and too many people like one year Amazon and Netflix will come in, buy things, five, 10, 15 million. And the next year they won't show up. And pe- but people in the year in between made films thinking that that market existed. So you got caught like, you know, when Assassination Nation, our film, when we got the biggest sale of Sundance 2018, the previous year, the sales were bigger. It, you know, like Netflix has changed their model. They're making $200 million films, $150 million films that not doing as much in the indies. That's not. So if you have like the right cast, you could sell it outside of it because you have a compelling package and story. If you don't have that cast, then the film festivals become that much more important because it's a third party validation. How are the critics and audiences enjoying it? So just like everything, it purely depends. I try not to have any hard and fast, but like it depends on the film and how, how you've made, made up your film. But, but we have to acknowledge, though, that it's extremely hard to get into Sundance, South by Southwest, Tribeca, these big film festivals. Like it's like basically with, without a direct connection, it's, it's like winning the lottery, basically. Yeah. You know? and, and so and- do you feel like what you're saying earlier, like you have to cultivate those connections in order to, to actually go with that plan? or someone on your team does. It is extremely hard, but it's not just connections. It is also still the film. And that's where, you know, it's a lot of times when people are putting casts together and I hear people like, what do you think this person is worth? And I'm like, you're not playing that model. That's the international film finance model, which we actually know it already favors a certain type of, especially if you're trying to make films that you know center women lgbtq or people of color well we know the international sales model isn't good so i say look for sundance famous look for south by famous or tribet you start seeing if you go back the last few years oh you know like it was like Catherine hahn for years and then you know she she went to the next level and you see you see these duplass back in the day i'm picking now that you see that they're all winners but you know, going back to Sundance 2013, my, my first Sundance year, well, there's a guy named Ryan Coogler with his first film, Jordan Voke Roberts, and a guy named Damien Chazelle had a short called Whiplash. Daniel Destin Critton didn't get short-term 12 into Sundance, won South by, much like Jim Cummings did a, a few years later with Thunder Road, and he did. So, wait, that's all the Marvel movies that I just, that, you know, <laughs> re- represented. So, and, and, you know, Michael B. Jordan kind of, and that's just eight years ago. That's not that long ago. So, you know, understand that it's an ecosystem and a family and just kind of pick, pick and choose. If you try in your little film, try to get that person that's getting paid millions of dollars to do what they do. Why do they want to do your film? You know, so going against type and doing that kind of stuff, giving other people an opportunity. That's your strategy for indie film. Speaking to that a little bit, let's say you have a filmmaker, or it could be the first, second, or third. I think emerging can cover a lot of experience levels. What are the practical assets that you think are most impressive? Like we, the context of this question is: I just re-listened to our interview with Talia Lugasi, and we talked with her, and she, her film, "This Is Not a War Story," got nominated for an Indie Spirit Nom, and she's very, she's a lot of conviction about how she puts her films together. And we said, what's the worst advice you've ever had? And it was someone, it was, she said it was someone telling her to make a lookbook. And I think that there are many schools with regard to preparing a project and packaging it. And I was just curious, do you have any perspective about 
what assets filmmakers need to have when they go to you, when they go to financiers, what do they need to have in order to get into this inner circle? I really enjoyed that film. I saw it on the film festival circuit. It opens with my friend, Danny Ramirez, who's, he was in Assassination Nation and he's about to be a flyboy in the new Top Gun. So somewhere <laughs> along the road, and he's not the most important character. He plays a bigger part of the whole story, but you only see him very little bit, very smart. So I read about that film. You know, you're, this is you ran. I wasn't prepared for this question, but I'm that, so sorry. No, no, no. But like, <laughs> it, so we're talking sp very specifically about someone else's. It's a very personal story. She's set, probably selling it in a room. She's Heller Highwater. I'm pretty sure writer, director, lead actor. It's a little bit different. But if you're coming to me, we just had this conversation last week where one producer on the team is lookbooks are dumb. <laughs> and they're actually a more seasoned producer than us. Like they're hmm. trying to be very discreet here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, in the next call, we explained here's why we think lookbooks are important because unfortunately, you wish every much like submitting a film to a film festival, you really hope that the right people are watching it, not just some people are watching it. Because if the wrong person watches it, the film is the same, but how it's a subjective how they view it. What if they hate films like this? What and now you, you, you didn't get in? That's why predictability of what gets in, what doesn't. It's like I, I gave that up, but I know, like I've said before. We already have a plan B, C, or D, and this is just part of the journey, and I'm not caught up in acceptance or rejection. We move forward. The reason I think lookbooks are important is you're trying to explain to that reader who may not read your whole script why your project is important. If they have a choice at the beginning of the day or end of the day, they have a 100, 105 page script, hopefully not much longer, versus a 15 page lookbook where they can go boom, boom, boom. Okay. You know, before I, who cares about my, like people are like, Oh, I'd love to get your notes on a script. I'm, I'm, I usually say no, mostly because it's like, it's just another opinion before I read a script. It usually has to, this is more my indie thing, not adding the marginal. It's got to pass kind of two thresholds. A, is there a chance I'll like it? And B, if, if it is, do I think I can help? If I don't think I can help, who cares? It's just an, another set of notes or another set of that. And, you know, time and money are our two most finite resources. So be, being that time is one of those, well, that's what the lookbook is providing. It's providing a little bit of vision. Who are the key elements? That's why I think it's important. I'm sure Ty, it, she's so close to it. People had to believe in her. That was the pitch and the story, which is a very important story. And I don't know how the, where the financing came for people she knew or people or were they savvy film financiers or were they a uh, patron of the arts that believed in her? I don't know that answer. So it's not a one size fits all. It's more like what gives us the most chances to, the win, to win, right? Like it's just like, yes, it can seem like a boring exercise. But every once in a while, it, it may get that door that much further opened. Or as, remember, these things are sometimes traveling without you in the room. So how can you put your, you know, when they say, oh, I have this, and they send it to their colleague and their colleagues like, why am I reading a random script? And then they can just look through it real quick. All right. 
it kind of fits there. Everybody has their own mandate. Okay. Is this something that we might like? And is this something we think we can help on? So that's my thing on assets. In terms of international sales estimates, I'm not really big. Most of mine are like, they're domestic plays. I, people say, what's it worth internationally? I say zero. I'm hoping that that is gravy. When we make those sales, I'm hoping that is, puts us over the top. But the way most of my projects that were you know, private equity, maybe private equity plus tax credit funded were on the value of what I thought the domestic was. And uh, so I'm not saying someone's right or someone's wrong. It's a, on a per project, but it's just giving yourself the best chances to succeed. Because it also for- forces the, the creatives to really focus in on themes and this. And you, it, you know, the, the two biggest things I'm looking for a director is you know, not ability to talk to actors, yes, but then the clarity of vision. So it, it really kind of focuses that clarity of vision. So I'm a big fan of lookbooks. I know it's not a universal and there's plenty of films that are made without them. I'm not a fan of 55 page lookbooks of 30 pages of random pictures taken from other things of varying budgets that you may never have access to and can't recreate on your budget. But of like, you know, 10, 15 pages, like, or, or, or less. I'm all about it. When you're looking at that lookbook as a independent producer, you know, what are some of the things that you're looking for? And like you, you said, like a lot of it's up to, to if you can help or not. If a movie comes to you with a lookbook and there's no cast attachment and there's no money attached and it's just a script of just a lookbook, is that like a situation where like, oh, no, I can't help at all? Like this, or is it just depend on the project and, and you know, yeah, some in of the fact, details? That's been most of my projects. It's just a cast wish list. And some of it, because of my experience in relationships, it's like, oh, I can help get those things to people. You know, we were just talking about Tali, this random filmmaker that you brought up. I was like, yeah, the opening scene of her movie is my, not only he was in one of our fa- films, but he became a friend of mine. And so it's a relationship game, right? Agents and managers, especially when you don't have money, their job is to gatekeep. They're doing their job for their client. But as you all know, it's extremely frustrating for us because we're caught up with one offer. We're waiting two, three, four weeks. We can't move forward. So most of the projects, they don't have those. But it's giving me an idea of what they're looking for. Because if that lookbook does have pictures of like Bruce Willis and this and that, and then they said they're it for 200000 dollars, there's a disconnect, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, are they going to be realistic? Because all this is like little data points on what's this person going to be like to work with. And outside of the obvious things in a lookbook, which are things like potential cast, but for me, the understanding the why is really important. And that director statement and understanding why they're telling this story that maybe didn't kind of come across in the casual conversation, or sometimes I haven't had that casual conversation. And that, once again, that's where the lookbook can go a long way. If I am meeting with a director in person, one of my first questions once we start talking about the project is why this project and why you? And I really need to understand that because it's, it's getting an idea, are they the right person to tell this story? Because sometimes it's not, it's not something you can do on just face value, just because, let me not say this wrong, but like, just because they're one color doesn't mean this, just because they're 
LGBTQ doesn't mean they can't direct a straight project. You know, it's like, you know, talk it. That's the counter of what you usually hear. But like, because they, they, they've had a whole life experiences where, where they grew up, who they grew around, who their parents were, who their cousin was, who that this or where that, you know, they're from. So getting an understanding of the why and that director's statement and I feel like the why was in spades going back to like Talia's project, right? Like that's a very compelling, like you can see the people that did get involved that are the ROE to do a callback to what, you know, the, this is an important story. This is the right person to tell it. And no actor can learn what she's been through. You know, know, they can uh, act. So it's just like, okay, like the the authenticity is there. And for me, finding authenticity has been important since the, since I, since I started in, in the industry. I think we need to move to our final questions. So Alon, just to give you some context, there are six questions more about you and like your relationship to films. The first question is, What's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now? The first film I made was a film called Rock Slide. And remember, I just left corporate America. This is, this is January 31st, 2008. And we were shooting this in June, July. Sunset in Hollywood. Hollywood sign in the background starring Patrick Warburton, <laughs> Andy Dick. We had cameos every five minutes from Tom Bergeron, Guillermo from the Jimmy Kimmel Show. <laughs> Leah Thompson, you have to have Eric Roberts somewhere in your early <laughs> films, like <laughs> all amazing people that helped us out. And I still stand by that film, so proud of what we did, but it's a great example of the lesson I learned. We made a lower budget version of what the studios were doing. It was a film noir detective comedy. <laughs> you know, it was like the funny version. We thought it was like the funny version of Brick, right? Like that was right around. <laughs> I, so I still, you know, stand by it. Social media wasn't a, th- a thing. I think social media being a thing would have been bigger for our film. Elaine Hendricks and Rena, Rena Sofer were in it too. So I still stand by it. And the fifth film I made where hope grows right after Lifeguard was with that same director. You know, I had a, just had a conversation with him two weeks ago, still friend of mine, but it was a great lesson learned. You, you know, we had to, most of the investors were us. Early on, we, we didn't want to ask people too close. Most people blow out their close relationships on their first one. But for me, it was if I can convince a stranger to invest, I felt they have no reason to give me money, not just because I'm a you know, good person or they like me. It's like, am I making a good case? And it wasn't until I made a few films where literally people started reaching out and it's like, why haven't you called us? And, 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 that, and that patience. So we made a lot of good decisions on that first one, but we didn't really understand the marketplace and ask some of those questions up front. We were just excited to do something. You know, our cinematographer on that was Alex Lehman, who I don't know if you've interviewed him, but he's he, he directed Blue Jay and he's a Sundance and TIFF and South by, you know, favorite. Uh, wow. yeah, the Duplass brothers love him. A very talented guy, but I think his first or second, like full DP credit, you know, some people. So I still stand by the film. It was a great opportunity for lessons learned that I try to teach other people. I think we did a good job for the money, you know, we had. I think, you know, it's a little over 300,000, which was a different amount back then. You know, what, like, you know, how they say, like, 
one million is the new five million, you know, and, and it's it just all it, 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 in 2008. That was a low, low budget, you know, because we we, pay, we paid everyone and, and we I think we did it the right way. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? The be- best filmmaking piece of advice was give yourself seven to 10 years to feel like you're heading in the right direction. Because without that understanding of, I think most of us, especially our film industry is filled with smart people. We know it's not a pure meritocracy. And we grow up, oh, if you got good grades, you're in the accelerated classes. You just think that meritocracy is going to get you through. But understanding that, and, and then the more you get involved, the more you hear people's backstories, just how long they've been doing it. I, I think it would have been really hard to get through those very scary times that, you know, that, that fine line between it, ambition and delusion. Am I doing the right thing? I can always try to go back and get a, safer job and this industry will test you and that's why you know relationships and your your fr- true friendships and r- relationship to mental health like checking in on yourself and your friends like understanding that it's going to be a journey and you need to do it with other people and root on other successes it's us against the world and you know when the Marvel, that's a different industry from what we're doing, but we can, we can be a part of it. You know, once again, Ryan Coogler is a great example. And on, you know, that where hope grows with that director, I said, I did my first film with my line producer was one Sevohanian <laughs> that Ryan Coogler told me about at the can, at the can film festival about someone he, you know, he loved and trusted. And I, I, I took, took him out for dinner, dinner and drinks. And, you know, now they're, now they're sitting at Warner Brothers or actually they're making Creed, Creed 3, you know, all together. And it's, it's so that understanding that it was going to be a long journey from the beginning. So then those failures along the way didn't hurt. It's like, it's just making me stronger. It's just testing me. What I need to refine. I need to refine. And f- figuring out who you are as a person, as a producer or whatever, whatever. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? Uh, that's the way we've always done it. <laughs> you know you hear it all the time and i i don't i think partly just because i'm a curious person partly because i'm a former auditor so finding efficiencies and you know and and getting rid of inefficiencies and mitigating risks is not only my nature as a person but it was my trained career for nine years and you know i did production finance and accounting at warner brothers for five years so my first film set was batman begins in london and super so I saw how the big boys do it right from the, the beginning and took what lessons I could and a- applied it. But so often I heard that's the way we've always heard it, but there could be a better way. And that better way might not just be the idea I have. It might be the idea, the PA that actually has more film education than me. Why not lean on that person? And you can get it. So it's like, I hate random hierarchy and the cliquish nature that sometimes are industry people wanting to feel like well this is what a producer's how they're supposed to act and sit in you know video village and this and that so those traditions and weird classist elitist things that that's the way we've always done it well that the way we've always done it and you can take this parallel to our country whether it's voting rights or whatever has has kept a lot of people out kept a lot of thinking out and so it's like okay i don't need to recreate the wheel 
but let me understand it. And sometimes you're like, oh, you know what? You're right. Because I don't know. (laughs) It's just like, if that's your only advice, that's the way we've always done it. And there's not, there's not another layer. Well, I'm willing to explore some other ways because I'm sure there was an advice, you know, 10, 15 years ago that was purely related to top festivals. And we love those festivals, but there's great regional film festivals. There's great, you know, niche film festivals that can drive your film. You know, my most successful film, well, Assassination Nation being the, the biggest sale, but my most successful films on an ROI basis weren't at Sundance, you know. <laughs> So there were, there's other, other pieces of the puzzle. So do you have a goal as a filmmaker? My goals, my, my goals are, are, are pretty easy. Like I, I think I've given up any goals of wealth or any, anything like this. All I want to do is keep, keep making films go, going, going forward. And I want to take as many people with me as I can and open as many doors as I, as I can and give new people and new stories, upper opportunities. So all I want to do is keep making, keep making films. And the, it, it, uh, there's no goal to run a studio or this. And it's just like surround myself with good people that I like working with from, you know, P- PAs to CEOs or, 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 or whatever else. And just, just keep making. I think we're very fortunate to be a part of this industry as hard as it is. And it's, it's going to test it. And luckily we have. You know, great champions. I'm loving conversations that people like Rebecca Green are are are, are driving to force us to to force us to talk about these things and and not just get let people know it's way more than the red carpet and the big premieres and the big sales. Like like, all right, let's check in with each other and let's let's make it a little bit easier for the people that come after us. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Well, this is this is very the the elements that people do pick up in film school w- relating to film and film history. Like I'm I'm playing catch up, but I wish I would have done it sooner. Because mm-hmm. eventually you start, you feel like you start running out of time. Anytime somebody's like, you know what film you have to watch, and you, you know your list of the things that you're supposed to watch, you're never going to get to. So how do you how do you how do you? And there's this paralysis of decision, but just I think becoming a better student of the, the, the craft and the history earlier. I'm playing catch up now and I'm sure there's a million, million things that I wish, I wish I would have known or not learned the hard way. I wish I would have, you know, found a mentor early, early on. I always envious of people that have those relationships and coming from a background that, that wasn't film. I wish I would have started that journey on that side. I was just trying to make a film, make a film. But the more and more stories you see, you start seeing how it reflects in your notes. One side fits the, fits the other. And I, I, I didn't fully put together that, that puzzle right away. But, and part of it's out of desperation. How do I just make another film? I can't watch everything. I can't watch everything. But there, there really is not only an added value as a professional, but I think at you know, you're seeing some of the greatest storytellers from all over the world, and there's something to learn. That is the power of film, right? And I, and it, it it does affect your choices, whether you're giving notes on a script or an edit or and and choosing projects. And then, last question: Is making movies hard? <laughs> what if all those verbose answers? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> 
But just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> I was I was trying to see. I try to find my own holes and hypocrisies before someone else. But you said, and I was like, oh shit. But I, I do <laughs> always want to end on a hopeful uh, on a hopeful note of not giving up and persevering and finding your people and everything worth it is is hard. You know, I, I appreciate appreciate you all and thanks for having me. Thank you. How how can people support you? You know, the best way you can support me, you start by just supporting the whole indie film ecosystem. Make sure you're buying, make sure you're not just waiting for the year end screeners. And I'm not even talking about my own films, not only watching the films. And if they come out on an AVOD, if they come out on HBO Max, still watch it, but then rate them on Rotten Tomatoes, then tweet about them. Like we don't all have millions of dollars. So first and foremost is like, let's just each support each other and then me specifically is you know we're we're marginal media works and you know so our 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 thesis is in our title marginal media orcs and it it, it is keep telling stories keep telling stories if 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 your entire feed is only talking about your projects you're doing it wrong so liz what did you remember from our conversation with milan i think it's really valuable to trap someone into a podcast recording to ask them questions about how to finance a film. (laughs) That is like one of the privileges of being the co-host of this show. And what I remember is just like being very excited that we had trapped Milan and that we had him at our disposal to ask him all these questions because he's done so much. I mean, in addition to being the head of Marginal Media Works, it's like he also has been an independent producer that's played Sundance like gazillions of times. So he just has a lot of experience. So I just remember feeling very lucky to have nabbed him. What do you, what do you remember? Yeah. I remember that, you know, he had a lot of irons in the fire, you know, like he was one of these people who like was constantly working on something new or like attaching himself to something, helping filmmakers get their movies made however he can, which I thought was really cool. And just the way that he selected projects I thought was interesting, like the way that he would look at a script and decide if it's something that he wanted to to help or not, you know, and, and the idea of like, can I help them? You know, like, am I going to bring anything to, to the table to actually help this project? I think that was one of the things he said. I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, I don't know. We don't have very many producers on the show. So it's always fun to talk to a producer and hear They're my favorite, how they navigate things, how they handle stuff, because it's very different than like, a you know, writer director or producer director or something like that producers are like the ultimate vip i was in this this sundance like i don't know like zoom meeting during the festival with doc producers and also some fiction producers and i got so shy that i like i just started like i wouldn't unmute myself and i just wanted to watch all the producers talk because i just think they're the coolest people so I, I don't know. I just think... And they don't get enough credit either. They just are thought of as like these numbers crunchers. But producers are the heroes of indie film. And I just um, thank you, producers. Thank you, producers. And moving on, I think Liz, <laughs> we've got a very... <laughs> I'm just laughing at like my really weird soapbox. Like, producers are wonderful statements. <laughs> like, what is going to come of that? Like, why? What? I don't know. Okay. Yes. But yes, let's move on. Let's move on, Auric. Yeah. So we have a, a wonderful chat with a actor, writer, producer. And Liz, you want to intro this person since you are connected to yeah. them in a way? So in actually February 15th, 2020, 
I directed a short film called Lena that Erica Longo starred in and wrote and helped produce along with Kelsey Maples. The film stars Laura San Giacomo alongside Erica and Sandra Sika. Really VIP actors. Very honored to have made this. And because the film is releasing publicly on February 15th, 2022, we have a very special guest in Erica who's going to talk about how she put the project together. And Auric was very kind enough to put some questions to her. So here's our chat with Erica. Well, we're very excited to welcome Erica Longo to the show, the writer, producer, and star of the short film, Lena. Welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited. So I'm really curious to know, like, you, know, you came at this as a first time filmmaker. So how did you come up with the idea for the short? And then how did you start getting it made? Yeah, it seems like forever ago. I actually had written a few pages of what is now called Lena several years ago, probably like more than five years ago. And it was unfinished and I kind of just tucked it away in my drawer. Wasn't sure if I was ever going to do anything with it. And then a few years later, 2019, I'd say, I really, really wanted just wanted to make something of my own. And also the short is about my grandma who is now passed. It was a two-parter. I kind of wanted to create my own content, but I also wanted to kind of make this in memory of my grandma. And so I took it out of the drawer and I was like, you know what? I really want to try my hand at actually getting this made. And I kind of re, you know, looked at the script and kind of restructured it. I was thinking originally it was going to be much longer than it ended up being. It's about 10 pages or so. And it had a few more characters in there. And I kind of shortened it to just be a little bit more intimate with the three women, the three generations of women. And so once I had the final draft, I contacted a friend of mine who I knew who had done some producing, Kelsey Maples, and she came on board as my producer. And then we found Liz and we approached Liz with the script. I had known some of her work, Bread and Butter, and I really liked it. And I liked the, I really wanted a female, mostly female creative team. And so Liz came on board and then Liz brought some of her awesome team on board. And then we spent 30 days kind of crowdfunding through Seed and Spark. So that was pretty intense, just reaching out to all the family and friends that we knew and asking if they could help donate. And then all the other stuff of, you know, scouting, we decided to do it in LA, primarily because Liz was out there and the whole team was out there, but also because Sandra Seacat, who played my grandma in the film, who played Lena, she was out there. And then the rest of our cast, Laura San Giacomo, she also lived out there. So we were like, let's just do it in LA. And then kind of all the pieces fell together miraculously. So you kind of, you scooted by a really important part, which I think is where a lot of people get hung up, like finding Liz. So like, how did you find Liz? And like, what was the process? And then how did you like get her on board? So I had, I had known, I had known her work a little bit before. I'd say like, uh, not super long, maybe a few months. And I had like researched a lot of, I, I kind of read a lot of interviews that she had done. And one of the big things that caught my eye was that she focused, uh, she liked to focus on micro budgets. And I was like, I don't have a ton of money to throw at this film. And we, you know, we just, we knew we were going to have to do crowdfunding. So reaching out, I really just email, I really just took a chance to be honest and, and said, Hey, I know of, I know of your work and I know that you are big on micro budget filmmaking and are big on projects with a lot of women collaborators and would you have any interest in taking a look at the script and possibly being a part of this production? And she was. 
So she wrote back and we were like, whoa. Yeah. And then she was actually in town because I'm in New York. And she was actually going to be in town, I think, fairly soon for work. And we actually met Liz, me, myself and Kelsey met up for coffee and kind of just like talked about the details and more in depth of what we were thinking. And we just went from there. And I, I, I was muted, but I laughed because <laughs> I think that the goal was a micro budget short. But then as we kept on going, and, yes. and I, I won't get into the details because it's proprietary knowledge for, for Erica and Kelsey. But I think I didn't realize how many favors people had granted me in the past in order to make the micro budget content that I had. And I think our budget got a little bit higher than we anticipated. So yes. I, I will forever feel guilty about that. But I'm glad that it got me to Erica. Yes, I am too. So the other part of this that everyone falls on is the money. So how did you raise the money to produce the short? And how did you yeah. figure out how much money you, did, you needed to make the short in the first place? Yeah, I think myself, Kelsey and Liz, we kind of all came up with a preliminary budget. And that's what we put up on our Seed and Spark campaign. And we chose the 30-day option, I think. And literally for 30 days, I know that I was just glued to my computer and my phone, just social media, just posting like crazy every day, multiple times a day, thanking anybody who gave anything and just, you know, sharing, sharing, sharing Twitter, you know, Instagram, Facebook. And we got greenlit. I think we got like 75 or 80% of that initial budget from Seed and Spark, from just friends, family. And then I think we, we, you know, each myself, I think Kelsey as well, we put in our own after that, after we, when we had to make up what we didn't get from our friends and family and stuff like that. So how much did you end up raising on Seed and Spark in the end? I think we raised mm, like 17,000, something like that. Wow. Close to that in that ballpark, I think. Yeah. That's, that's really impressive for a short film to raise them. Yeah. Money, so congratulations. I was, thank you so much. Yeah. I was, I was still, I'm still kind of amazed at the whole thing. So, I don't know, Liz, you have questions or should I just keep on going? Because I got them. I got the questions. I mean, I feel like it's unfair of me to ask questions, but what I, I want to hear, I'll ask a question because that's, why not? <laughs> because since then, Erica, you've expressed an interest in writing a little bit more longer form feature, possibly larger projects. So, I, I guess I just want to know where that you know, you don't necessarily have a substantial background as a writer, but I mean, you're a performer, right? So it's like you're reading constantly. So I'm just curious why you chose to write it versus outsourcing it to someone else. For Lena? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually didn't even think of outsourcing it. I just wrote it because I lived it, basically. And I actually, now that you said that, I, I don't think I could imagine anyone else writing it because it was su it's such a personal story. And I basically wrote what happened, essentially. I mean, I know there are a couple, there are a few things that have changed or whatever, as anything goes, you know, through the process when you actually begin to make it. But yeah, I don't think I could imagine anyone else else kind of writing the story because it was like my grandma. It's like my, you know, what I lived through with her and my mom. So. So before you made the film, like, what were the goals for the short? Like, what were you hoping to get out of it going into it? And then in the end, now that it's out and released, what did you actually get out of it? Ha, ah, that's a good question. I mean, I definitely in one way hoped that it would be a, a way for me to kind of showcase another side of my work as an actress. And I think that I'm pretty proud of what of the fact that I think it did do that. And so that was definitely a big part of it. And then the other part of it was just kind of honoring my my grandma's my grandma's memory. And I think I 
you know, I think it did a pretty good job with that as well. I mean, those were the two things that I really, two of my goals, I'd say, and actually just writing something and, and getting it made. I, I've been wanting, before I did Lean, I had been wanting to try my hand at writing for so long. And it was like, I just kept saying, eh, I don't think I can do that. It's super hard. Like I would always, you know, I was a part of a writer's group here in New York City for close to probably five years. Every, every week we would meet and writers would bring in their material and they would cast the actors to read it so they can hear it out loud. And, and I was always so mesmerized at all the pieces. And I was just like, wow, it must be so amazing to just create something, a story out of nothing and see it kind of come to life. And I literally am, st- I still feel that same way, which is why I'm still surprised that this actually came to fruition and it's actually done. And it's like, I'm really proud of what we made because that writing has always just seemed really amazing to me. How you can just like, it's like almost like making a baby, like you just, you just birth this thing and create a story from nothing and then watch it unfold, which I think is really awesome. So I just wanted to acknowledge something that I don't know if we're going to talk about, which is, you know, Erica said we didn't really know each other and it was just an email. But as I'm sure people are listening can tell, Erica's incredibly passionate and driven and was particularly driven to make this film. And for those people who are trying to get projects off the ground, I think they can, through osmosis, through through their earbuds, derive some sort of inspiration through what you did, Erica. I mean, like, genuinely, we were total strangers. Yeah, yeah. And like, somehow... Through the emails, through the meetup, I could tell how dedicated you were to getting this off the ground. I guess I w- I'd be curious if I can ask, you know, like, what contributes that kind of intensity? Like, that is, does it come from being a performer and having to have that, like, spine of steel on an everyday basis? Like, I'm just really curious, like, because a lot of people, like Ulrich says, like, projects fall apart all the time. So, yeah. what, what about I this guess one? I... Th- I think so. I mean, you know, some friends of mine will say like, once you set your mind to something, you just do it. Like you just go for it, which I guess is, is true. You know, sometimes I like, I don't think that way of myself, but I guess it had been always something in the back of my mind that I had wanted to do. And I just thought that this was the perfect story to tell because it was so close to my heart, like you said. And I just kind of felt that it was possible. Part of it also, you know, and I don't know if this sounds silly or not, but I saw so many people around me, you know, my peers and, and friends of mine that were creating their own work, whether it was like short films or web series or whatever it was, and getting stuff done. And I was like, for the longest time, I was like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. And it was kind of just something I said. And then I'm like, no, you know what? Everyone's doing it. Like, I'm going to do it. And so and I know that can sound kind of like wooey wooey or whatever. Like, it's just words that you say. But, you know, and I'm lucky enough that I had the support of my friends and my family and people and, you know, Kelsey who wanted to jump on board and you who wanted to join our team and, and it just, we were able to do it. And I'm grateful for that. So. So Liz, this is more of a question for you, like not knowing Erica at all and getting approached to direct this movie. Like what were some of the things that she did right in her ask to you that maybe you don't always see when people are approaching you with an idea or with a concept or with a story. Like, what were some of the things that, besides her overall determination and energy, like, what were some things that other people could do to also, like, give them success in trying to build their team? I feel like she saw me as an artist. Like, she'd actually watch the work. I get approached every now and then by people. Um, it's, not, it's not a crazy anomaly, though I'm not in demand. Like just two days ago, someone asked me to produce their feature and I was just like, why me? 
And they were just like, well, I saw that you had done a horror film at one point. So it's like she had done her research in terms of the team that she went on board. That was really important. And the other major, major part of it was she was willing to come to me. I went to New York because I was on a, I, my job took me to New York and I got sick. And I met Erica and Kelsey in the lobby of my hotel, I think. And I was like, don't get too close to me. I'm really worried about infecting you. <laughs> and they just seemed, you know, really driven and committed. And they had done the research, just like I said, the research on me, but research on crew members they were thinking of bringing on board. I think they had already kind of started to budget, like they had done the work. And then when I said I was too worried about spending time away from my son, they were like, that's fine. We'll, we'll see if we can accommodate you. And of course, Sandra and Laura Sangiacomo and Julia Swain and Marcy Mount. And, they, and of course, they were accommodating to the crew members that I wanted on board too. So I'm just saying like that level of accommodation was incredibly flattering. And then also it's like you take someone seriously if they're not just dreaming of an idea, but they're putting it into action. And so that was very important to me. And I wanted to be part of a project where it meant something. It was personal. Like it wasn't just something where like, I love vampires. I'm going to write a vampire movie. Will you direct this vampire movie? It, was, it meant something to Erica. And that story also, I think, got Julia Swain on board too. The caretaker aspect of the short film, because it is about caretaking, is something I know that Julia, the cinematographer, really glommed onto as well. Yeah, and Laura as well, also. Yeah. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. So what was the hardest part of the whole process of getting this, this movie made? Was it the shooting? Was it the pre-production? Was it the post-production? Like, What was the hardest aspect for you on this project? I would say... It wasn't shooting it. I mean, I don't know about for Liz. For me, it definitely wasn't shooting it. That was just, you know, all the awesomeness of the creativity coming to life. I, th I would say probably the fundraising aspect of pre-production and just kind of like making sure that we had all the, that we had the budget. And when, you know, stuff was like, because Liz said, you know, we went over budget, but of course, so many things go over budget it was like trying to make sure like, okay, wait, are we good? Like, do we have that? Can we do it? that whole kind of stress right before we were going to go out there and like, you know, right before the trigger got pulled kind of, so to speak, horrible way to say that. But yeah, just, you know, like right before it was going to happen, making sure all those things were being met and that we actually had all the stuff in place, I'd say. And just to weigh in on that, we shot mid-February 2020. Yeah. So it's like two years. Yeah. Like exactly two years. But we started post-production before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic happened, I remember having conversations where we were like, how are we... Like, dropping the drive off to the editor was like a very weird situation because it was the very beginning stages. And we're like, okay, we're going to drive, uh, drive over to you personally. We're going to wait outside. We're going to be double masked. We're going to... Like, it was just became navigating the coordinating and navigating post-production and pandemic when you don't quite know what you can do and what you're allowed to ask other people to do because everyone was so nervous about like, are, what is this that we're in the middle of? I think that was also crazy. And it slowed us down, but it slowed us down in a good way because we got to look at the edit a little bit longer and we got to collaborate a little bit more. Yeah. And we were really lucky because if we, I mean, I think once we got home, once we got back to New York, everything shut down, like I think maybe three weeks later. Yeah. So we got super lucky because if it were, if it had been a couple of weeks later, we probably wouldn't have been able to 
shoot it. So. So my last question is like, now that you've gone through this process, you know, your film's out in the world, you know, you did it. Like, what's next for you? Like, are you thinking you're going to do more short films like these? Are you trying to work on a feature? Are you looking into directing now after you've gone through this process? Like, what is your next steps? All good questions. I would love to do another film. I've written, I think, like three more shorts since, uh, since Lena. And I have like a couple that I'm like, oh, I would really love to, to do these. And I, yes, I would love to do a feature, but the thought right now is just a little daunting, which I'm not sure why, because it's just more scenes and the longer, although there's more to that because the whole structuring thing. And I've never even really taken a writing class. So, you know, there's so many things that I do not know. But I think for me, the, the biggest question has been funding, even though I've already done it with, with Lena. It's like, okay, well, we just did the crowdfunding. And so, like, can I do, can I and do I want to do that again for the next one? You know, because I would just be reaching out to basically the, you know, the same people. I mean, obviously I have more people that I know now, but like, can I do that again? Are people going to want to chip in again? So it's like, how do I approach that? Because I, you know, I don't have, you know, a big pocket full of money I can just throw at it. So that's the biggest thing. It's like, okay. and also COVID now, because even though things are definitely, you know, it's better than when it first happened, it's a whole other you know, probably budget thing because you have to test people and make sure that there's safety protocols happening. So yeah, that's the funding probably is the biggest thing I would worry about, if I would say. Well, awesome. Well, this has been really great. Erica, thanks so much for coming on the show. Liz, any other final questions or things you think we missed that we should talk about? Just want to say that Erica is a tremendous writer and actress, and I didn't have to, or I didn't feel compelled to give her one adjustment, nor do I think anyone would have in, the, in my place, because she fucking nailed it. So I just thought people should know that. Thank you. And they'll see it when they see the short, because it's out now. Thank you, Liz. I love you. I love you too. That was so awesome working with you. Thank you, Alric. Thank you guys for having me on. Hey. And everyone, go watch the short now. Watch the short now. Yeah, go watch Leave a a comment. Woo, yes, leave a comment. Tell us what you think. Alric, should we even recap this? Do we recap a small Mm -hmm. interview? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I thought it was really interesting to like kind of to hear her approach and how she went about it and that like she just, you know, watched your work. And was like, hey, this person's great. I want to work with them. And then reached out to you. And then it worked out. Like, that's kind of amazing. And I think it's like amazing for her. And it's also amazing for you that like your movies reach somebody and then had that impact where they were like, this is the person I want to direct my movie. So that was one of the lasting things from the conversation that I took away from it. I don't know, like for you, like, what was that like? Like, were you completely shocked when someone approached or like, how did you navigate that whole thing? It's not a shock to be approached. It's a shock to have someone pursue you with the intensity of Erica Longo. She's really talented and she's really amazing and incredibly dedicated to this film. And her and Kelsey did everything they could to make me feel comfortable as director. And like that was remarkable because I've been in scenarios where I've been asked to direct things for other writers. I've been brought on to other projects and it's been really flattering and wonderful. But they were people who had never made a film before. And so they didn't really know how to put a project together with a certain degree of... I don't even know what to say, like space for the director's influence. And I felt like I got a lot of that, which was really nice. Like the location I wanted, they bent over backwards to get. Like they, you know... There was like, I got to bring Colin to the location. Like there's all these things that they were just like, absolutely. And said yes to, and they got 
they, they let me have my team of Julia Swain and Marcy Mount. And that was incredibly important to me too. So it was really unique, but I just want to shout out to Erica and Kelsey for, for making the film and for being wonderful. Awesome. Yeah, it was fun. I can't wait to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Looking forward to watching it as soon as it comes, comes live. So give you guys one more view to your accounts of these. Thank you. And to everyone else, we'll probably, we'll probably share the link on Patreon as well and try to spread the word. But if anyone's out there who has a question, comment, or suggestion, please send it to us at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We are, we actually, I love, it's like Hanukkah morning reading the reviews. So if you have time and you're looking for a good deed, Patreon or iTunes, where we're to send that energy. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Please check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thank you to Milan for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing amazing work with the editing. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being equally amazing and fantastic and putting up with us. Thanks to everyone for listening and talk to all y'all next week. Boom. Boom. Okay, I'm going to stop. I was like, is it a boom? Is it was a boom?